Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Hello and welcome to another installment of the American Association Hip and Knee Surgeons podcast series. During this four-part podcast event, we will be discussing infection as it relates to joint replacement. Tonight, we will discuss the first two parts for diagnosing and treating an infected joint replacement. Our goal is to help patients understand the importance of infection, as well as outline treatment and recovery. During parts three and four of the podcast series, we will share personal experiences from patients who have been successfully treated for an infected joint replacement. We ask you to please visit our website, hipknee.aahks.org, for further information about all aspects of hip and knee replacement. Joining us this evening are several members of our AUKUS Patient Education Committee and two infectious disease specialists. I would like to take a few moments to introduce tonight's participants. First off is Dr. Ben Stronick. He's an associate professor at the University of Arkansas. He completed his adult reconstruction fellowship at the University of Utah, as well as an international traveling fellowship at the University Hospital in Bern, Switzerland. Welcome, Dr. Stronick. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you organizing it. No problem. Next, we have Dr. Arjun Saxena from Rothman Orthopedics in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He completed his adult reconstruction fellowship at Anderson Clinic in Alexandria, Virginia. Dr. Saxena, glad to have you. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Our next participant, Dr. Obi Adigwama from Orlando Orthopedic Center in Orlando, Florida. He completed his fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania, and he specializes in all aspects of hip and knee replacement. Thank you for participating. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Next, we have Dr. David Fricaro, Assistant Professor of Orthopedics at Boston University School of Medicine in Boston, Massachusetts. Completed his fellowship in adult reconstruction at New England Baptist Hospital in Boston. Welcome, Dr. Fricaro. Thank you. Glad to be here. Next, we have Dr. Karen Willenberg. She is Associate Professor and Section Chief of Infectious Disease at Marshall University School of Medicine in Huntington, West Virginia. She completed her fellowship at the University of Rochester in New York. Dr. Willenberg, thank you for speaking with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Yes. Next, we have Dr. Catherine Belden, Associate Professor of Infectious Disease at the Sidney Kimmel Medical College at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She completed her fellowship at Thomas Jefferson University Hospitals in Philadelphia. We appreciate you making time for us tonight, Dr. Belden. Thank you. I'm happy to be here for this important discussion. Excellent. And my name is Matthew Bullock. I'm Associate Professor at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. I am an orthopedic surgeon that completed my adult reconstruction fellowship at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center. I'll be serving as moderator for tonight's podcast. All right, everyone, introductions are over. Let's go ahead and get started here. So infections are a big concern for patients and for physicians and specialists. We want to start off with our first question here. In general, 
why is an infected total joint replacement important? And we'll start with Dr. Saxena first. Hey, thanks. You know, this is a really important topic. Joint replacement, hip and knee replacement, really common. We're talking a million, 1.5 million in our country every year. And that number is probably going to rise as the population ages. Fortunately, infection happens pretty rarely, but when you're talking with numbers of 1 million, 1.5 million, you know, it means there's a significant number, even if less than 0.5% of people get infections. So it's really important, number one, because there are a number of people affected by this, even though it's a small percentage. And number two, people think they're going to get their joint replacement and they do the surgery to get their life back and to do the activities they want to do without pain. And so really any complication is a big deal. And so that's why as orthopedic surgeons, we probably spend 90% of the time figuring out and researching on the failures to try to prevent them. So that's been really positive. And I think in recent years, probably the last 25, 30 years, we've been able to decrease the incidence of infection. But it's really important that we continue to study it because it can really be a pretty devastating complication. It can lead to multiple surgeries, more time out of work, pain, dysfunction. What do you think, Ovi? Any other thoughts on why this is such an important topic? Yeah, I mean, those are all important things. The, the, the patient expects to have a better knee or hip afterwards, and, and they don't expect to have multiple surgeries afterwards. Multiple surgeries afterwards can lead to increased complications. They could become stiff afterwards. It could lead to even as devastating as it sounds, sometimes it could lead to loss of limb. And that, I don't want that to sound scary, but that's why we study infection so much, because once the joint gets infected, it does become very burdensome on the patient. From another perspective, and this is not as important as the patient side of it, but it is important to society. It is a burden on the hospitals and the healthcare system in terms of increased costs. So these are all factors that we consider, and that's why we study it so much. Well said, guys. Well said. I think that kind of puts things into perspective. We would like everything to be 100%, be a slam dunk and be easy, but everyone's different. This is not like we're working on a car where we just change pieces out. This is a human being where sometimes things don't heal right or don't go right. And patients have to be aware of that risk. And they are aware of that risk, but they have to know that uh, there's a team of doctors, team of specialists, team of physicians that work together to help to prevent as well as diagnose and treat these problems. So. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So moving to our next question here. So Dr. Ricaro, how do we diagnose a periprosthetic joint infection or an infection around the joint replacement? How do we diagnose that? Yes. Thank you. I think it's important to understand that a lot of our focus is on prevention and we do a lot of things, but unfortunately infections can occur. And when they do, they can often cause pain. So as surgeons taking care of our patients, we try to have very precise guidelines in trying to diagnose these infections. And so I utilize the Musculoskeletal Infection Society criteria for infections. They have very specific guidelines trying to uh, diagnose infections. They classify those as major criteria, minor criteria. Generally speaking, an obvious sinus tract is going to be uh, diagnostic of infection. If you have two positive cultures, from either tissue or, or joint fluid with the identical pathogen, that will be diagnostic of infection. Or then you can get into the minor criteria where you'll have to have several of those present. And there are different things. You can have blood tests such as a sed rate or a C-reactive protein level. You can have a, a, an aspiration done of the involved joint and test that fluid. 
And if that synovial fluid count is at a certain number that can help diagnose the infection, then there are other criteria such as obvious purulent material present within the joint on inspection, a positive culture from the joint sample. And then you can even use intraoperative tissue samples and look at neutrophils and cells present within that tissue. So there's a variety of different laboratory tests and clinical exam findings. But again, kind of what you're alluding to earlier is that this area of the field has really advanced in the last 10 to 15 years to become much more precise in trying to diagnose accurately infections because that has been a challenge over the years. Well said, well said. Dr. Shonick, any other things you want to add to Dr. Riccaro's explanation there? I think he hit the major things that we use in terms of trying to diagnose infection. As we know as surgeons, it still is an imperfect science and there's still a good number of patients where it can be difficult to figure out if they're infected or not. And there are multiple technologies um, that we are, are starting to come online that are going to potentially be very beneficial in speeding up the process of making a diagnosis and providing more clear information for us to get a diagnosis. So we still have work ahead of us to be able to accurately diagnose infection but we continue to improve in this area. I think something else we should mention here is there's an acute infection and then there's chronic infections, right? And an acute infection, which means the patient may have some symptoms or develop some pain that starts, lasts for a couple days. And that's something that we want to jump on or be notified about as soon as possible. Then there's chronic conditions where the knee is hurt on and off for years or the hip's been given problems for years or a long time. There might have been an incident where the patient was sick and then several months later, the replaced joint starts to give them problems. That's more of a chronic type setting. And we usually use about a six-week mark basically as a cutoff between acute and chronic infection. And that's important as a, as a surgeon and as medical specialists to kind of know, is it acute versus chronic because each are treated or can be treated a little bit differently. So excellent. Excellent. Yeah. yeah um, a really special opportunity here in this podcast because what people don't always realize is that, you know, doctors work together. And despite the fact that we're all doctors, what an infectious disease doctor might think or see or perceive may be different from an orthopedist. So I wanted to get a sense from Dr. Belden and Dr. Willenberg. Obviously, we consult the ID specialist when we have cultures or intraoperative findings. But what other things, are there other things that you guys use to diagnose periprosthetic infections? Do patients ever just come to your office saying, hey, I had an ear replacement, I might have an infection? How do you handle those situations? So when, when evaluating a patient for prosthetic joint infection, you know, we do really, from the infectious diseases standpoint, you know, look at the whole patient, see what's going on. I mean, the timing from the arthroplasty surgery is very important, which has already been mentioned as far as trying to ascertain whether or not this is an acute infection or chronic infection, things like toxicity, concern for a bloodstream infection, which could potentially seed a joint after the acute postoperative period are always a consideration. We do follow the same diagnostic criteria that, that have been mentioned. Um, there's been a lot of work on establishing uh, criteria for diagnosis in recent years, and this is really helping to sort of standardize the field from the diagnosis standpoint and also from the research standpoint. Dr. Willenberg? We do use the same Criteria. I will say when we are sent patients with concern for infection, they've typically had a joint aspiration and had a lot of the workup already done. 
They're usually in the hospital. We often have cultures to work with. And so my role is not always so much on that early evaluation and diagnosis standpoint as it is more evaluating with the workup that's already been done and then utilizing that to help form a treatment plan. Right. All right. I think this segues into our next topic here is as a patient with an infected or a questionable infection around their hip or knee replacement, you know, what would be some signs or symptoms that a patient should be more concerned about with their hip or knee? Let's kind of start there. Dr. Digwame, what do you look for? Or what do you tell patients? Yeah, so part of it kind of curtails to the acute versus chronic thing, but acutely after surgery, if they're improving and then they just get this sudden onset of pain, that's one. It could be other factors. Number two is in the acute setting after surgery, then you know, looking at the wound, if there's some increased redness, if there's drainage, that's a major one. If there's significant drainage, usually two weeks after a near hip replacement, there shouldn't really be much drainage. So if there's a, a significant amount of drainage, then that's something to worry about. Obviously, any kind of purulence or, or pus would be something to be concerned about. And just pain kind of out of proportion. So a few weeks after surgery, obviously patients heal differently, but if there's just some 10 out of 10 pain, then that's something that we really worry about. Also, if the range of motion is improving, you know, at some point you're zero to 115 or zero to 120, then all of a sudden, then the next day you just get this increase in pain and you can only bend your knee to 50, 60 degrees. Then it's something to be concerned about just calling the surgeon and at least having it looked at and worked up. Yeah, you know, Obi, I think that you hit the nail on the head here, calling your surgeon. So I think really important in that post-operative period is being in touch with your surgical team. So yeah, again, if there's increase in pain all of a sudden, fevers, drainage from the wound, if there's a wound opening, there's a lot of ways to communicate with our doctors these days. You could do telemedicine. Sometimes there's apps where you could send pictures of the wound. Um, a lot of times there's a nurse navigator, whether it's at the hospital or your doctor's office. So those are all, you know, concerning signs that there could be an infection. And again, not sticking your head in the sand and, and you know, being proactive with it and talking to your physician or their team is really important. You know, you can also find, and that's a lot for the acute post-surgical infection. As far as chronic infections, sometimes people come in and they had a knee replacement a few years ago, and maybe they're having some pain. You can get an x-ray and sometimes an x-ray will show changes in the way the bone and the implant interface that could be indicative of an infection or some other problem. You can also get some advanced scans like a bone scan or a white cell scan that uh, in a case where maybe it's not obvious, that might be something that leads the physician to believe you might have an infection. So that the work up there, even if there aren't signs other than pain, there are other things we can do to try to figure that out. But again, I think wound drainage, wound breakdown, and fevers are probably the number one, two, and three signs of infection and, and reasons you need with your surgical team. And the most important thing is kind of what you said is for the surgeon and the provider and for the patient just not to stick their head in the sand, the faster that it's identified and addressed, you know, the better the outcome and hopefully the less comorbidity. I think it's important to also let patients know that you're in this together with your surgeon and the medical team. Uh, some patients I've seen, they don't want to bother me or it's after hours on the weekend, or they'll just go to an urgent care and seek treatment there. And that's something, you know, we really have to patients about. There should be a number to call if there's any problems on the weekend. And we'll get into this topic in a few minutes here, but we want patients to understand that this is an infection around or in a joint replacement is typically not treated with oral antibiotics. 
So just going and getting antibiotics from your family doctor and urgent care is not really the way we want to address this. And we'll get into that. We just want to mention that now. And this is that important that you want to let your surgeon and the team know if you start having any of these signs, symptoms, or any question that it could be your hip or knee could be infected. So, Matt, one quick point I'd like to add <laughs> is that the importance to get back to your surgical team is that seeing an ER physician or a primary care physician, they treat a lot of different conditions and don't always 100% understand some of the specific things that we're looking for testing. Right. There's sometimes you'll get delay in treatment if you don't talk directly to your surgical team. And sometimes we'll have confusing things happen where a physician will take a piece of cotton and rub it on the drainage on the skin, and then that will grow a bacteria, but that could be just anything off of your normal skin. And so that it just creates confusion sometimes when other providers get involved. Just another really important reason to work directly with your surgeon and their team if you have concerns about infection. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. All right. I think we covered that nicely. So, so our next topic is, Dr. Fricaro, which becomes infected more often, hips, knees, and then the first go around for knee replacement or the revision or the redo hip or knee replacement? What do you think? So I think it depends on what you read. Generally speaking, I think the there's about a 1% to 2% chance uh, of infection after hip replacement. And I think it's about a 1% to 4% chance of infection after total knee replacement. There are some Medicare-only population studies that were very consistent. Uh, it was actually slightly the other way. It was about 1.6% risk of infection after total hip replacement and 1.5% infection after total knee replacement. So right in that 1% to 2%. But anyway, it's right in that range, 1% to 3 to 1, 1% to 4%. I think the risk of infection, I think there's consensus, the risk of infection after a redo or revision surgery is, is increased versus the primary or the index surgery. Dr. Stronach, what's the difference between a primary and a revision surgery? Just for our listeners, what do you think? Yep. So in general terms, when we say primary replacement, we're talking about that you have your original joint you have your your native joint or your God-given joint, and we uh, then go in there and remove that joint and replace it with a hip or a knee replacement. So that would be your primary replacement. Mm -hmm. And then there are patients that have to have revision or redo surgery where they already have a joint replacement in place, and it's having some specific problem, such as it's worn out or it's become loose or could even be infected. And so if we're doing a redo surgery, that is not for infections for some other cause, the patient's already had surgery there before that area has already had scar tissue and trauma. And we know that you have a little bit higher risk of getting an infection in the revision setting than in the primary setting. And typically we'll counsel patients that as you have more and more revisions, some patients will have their same joint operated on five, six, seven times if they're having very severe problems your risk of infection goes up with each of those successive surgeries as there's further damage to that joint over time. Well put, well put. You know, Ben and, and Matt and everyone, you know, that I think really highlights the point of trying to get it right the first time. So right. everything as best as you can the first time. 
whether it's your medical doctor telling you to lose weight or the surgeon saying, okay, we need to get your diabetes under better control. All these things can help us to, you know, just get in the best shape possible for surgery. So hopefully, you know, you get through and it's fine. And you just don't want to, uh, we, we don't want to rush our patients to surgery thinking, oh, we'll just get the joint replaced and that'll be okay. We really want to get them in the best shape possible or optimize, which I think we've done a podcast on that previously. Yep optimizing the patient so that hopefully it is the only surgery and they don't need those redos because we know when you have those redos or those revisions, there's a higher rate of infection. Well said. Well said, man. Well said. All right. So now we'll change gears here a little bit. want to hear from Dr. Willenberg and Dr. Belden here. So our next topic here, our next, next uh, question is, you know, just how does a hip or knee replacement become infected. Now, there's numerous theories out here, and we don't want to get bogged down in too much of this, but in general, how does this infection start? What do you guys think? Dr. Belden? Yeah, so when we think about a prosthetic joint infection, it can be introduced at the time of surgery, and those are sort of the most common types of infections, or infection can develop through the bloodstream with bacteria or another type of pathogen traveling to the joint. But when we think about infection, in some way, the bacteria gain entrance into the joint. And a very important consideration is the formation of biofilm on the prosthesis. And when we're talking about biofilm, biofilm, the process involves the three-dimensional colonies of bacteria that form on the implant surface. And these bacteria are actually encased in sort of a self-producing extracellular matrix. I usually describe it to patients as sort of like a scaffolding, which creates a physical barrier protecting uh, bacteria within from not only just the, the host immune response, but also protecting the bacteria from, from the activity of antibiotics. And it's important to realize that deep biofilm bacteria can enter a metabolically inactive or sort of dormant state, which further limits the activity of antibiotics. And importantly, this process can develop within 14 days of the start of an infection. So pretty early from when an infection starts, and it can be very challenging to manage a, a biofilm-related infection um, in that it's, it's very hard for antibiotics to have um, optimal activities. So typically, uh, infections need to be managed with a combination of surgery and antibiotics, which I think you're going to talk about as well. But to summarize, you know, in some way, the pathogen is against entry to the joint, either through the surgery or, or through the bloodstream. And then oftentimes, biofilm is established, really posing challenges to the management. Dr. Willenberg. What's the talk about resistant bacteria and the topic is MRSA and VRE. We sometimes hear patients are diagnosed with this from their cultures and aspiration. How do these bacteria, how do we manage these and why are these different than our regular run-of-the-mill bacteria? The primary cause of most joint infections would be skin bacteria, so staphylococcus or streptococcus and those can come in more resistant varieties. And so MRSA has become a very common skin pathogen, but it is much more difficult to treat. And it requires IV antibiotics. Staph aureus in general is difficult to treat. And so for patients, it may mean that surgery for these more resistant organisms is much more important component and not just antibiotics alone. 
as you venture into a little more resistant organisms, they are going to be harder to treat long-term and harder to retain a joint. And I think just knowing that upfront, that the more resistant the organism, sort of the less our options are, and the more that surgery is important, is important to tell patients upfront and to work together to help kind of come up with a long-term plan because they do become more of our long-term patients. So how does a bacteria become resistant? We get that question a lot. We should probably flesh that out. So typically from external pressures, either from antibiotics that you've had in the past or been around people who have resistant antibiotics, and those can be passed between us, especially MRSA, you know, you can pass that from members of your household to others. And so if you're someone, we see this all the time with other types of infection, especially like in the urine where you're on antibiotics, and then you don't really clear the bacteria or clear the infection. And so the bacteria that we carry with us then become resistant to those antibiotics that you were taking. Gotcha. All right. Please be sure to tune in for part two of our podcast on diagnosing and treating an infected joint replacement. Thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.